Welcome to Speak Up, the official podcast of Speech Pathology Australia. We bring you insightful conversations with leading professionals about key issues and innovations in speech pathology, all in a concise format that's perfect for your busy schedule. We aim to inform, inspire, and also engage. We love hearing from you, so please join the conversation on our social media platforms or email us with your thoughts and questions. And please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Your support helps us grow and inform, inspire and engage others. Now, let's embark on today's conversation. Welcome to Season 6 of Speak Up. This week's discussion draws a number of examples from supervision and practice education in the United States, which typically happens at the graduate degree level. But the concepts can apply to a range of contexts in Australia, from university student placements to new graduate and even experienced practitioner supervision. Hello, this is Nathan Cornish-Raley speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonarong peoples. This episode is being published in February, where in Australia, many new graduates are beginning new jobs and beginning to receive support from new workplace supervisors. Also, speech pathology students will begin placements, so it seemed like a good time for this week's topic on critical thinking skills, how we develop them, some challenges to that development, and how supervisors can support these skills in our profession. I'm joined by Kelly Pena, who is an assistant professor of clinical practice at Rutgers University in the United States. Kelly is a member of the Professional Development Committee for the American Speech Language Hearing Association's SIG-18, Administration and Supervision, and is also president of ASHA's Hispanic Caucus. And I met Kelly after a presentation she gave on these topics, and it was one of those talks where I found myself taking as many notes as I could. So I'm really happy you agreed to share some of your thoughts with us today, Kelly. Oh, I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, to get us started, I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about yourself and your work. Sure. So I am, uh, as you said, an assistant professor of clinical practice at Rutgers University, and I focus in on clinical education as part of my job. So I'm a clinical educator. I work directly with graduate students, helping develop their skills to go out to their externships and eventually to their careers. Um, I work in the adult neuro population, generally speaking, but I like to say I work with neuro through the lifespan because I also spend time working in children's hospitals as well. So I've spent a lot of time working with graduate students, figuring out how they tick and figuring out the best ways to help support them in their growth and their journey. You know, you obviously have uh, quite a bit of experience helping people develop their critical thinking skills and exercising those in the workplace. I wonder, is there a definition for critical thinking that you find helpful? So I think when we talk about critical thinking skills, we talk about thinking past what's given to us. It's I like to say that it's taking all the pieces of the puzzle and putting them together. Um, I tell our students that we're kind of like speech detectives in that way, that the critical thinking is getting all the information that we may need and then finding a way to put it together in the way that it fits. Um, part of that critical thinking piece is going after that information that may not be initially obvious or may not be standard for each individual for their care and their um, clinical benefit. But as we learn about patients, we build those critical thinking skills specifically, kind of hone in on those areas of growth that we can see and help figure out and problem solve um, so when I think of critical thinking, I think of Nancy Drew. I okay. think of mysteries. Um, and I think of putting our students in a place where they feel safe enough to be able to take educated guesses and being able to back that up with evidence-based practice. You know, when we engage critical thinking, we also need to be open to change and to um, accepting new ideas and to... Uh, reviewing the ideas and you know, that we that we already have, so critical thinking seems to be as much about motivation and, and risk taking as it is about knowledge and skills. Um, I guess could you talk a bit about the interaction of these different components? Yeah, um, you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head emphatically with what you're saying right now. Um, the idea of risk taking specifically. Uh, Critical thinking, the entire premise of critical thinking is that 
uh, the information isn't concrete. It isn't necessarily available. It's something we have to seek out. And going to seek that out takes courage. It takes bravery. Uh, when you're a graduate student, when you're coming out of undergrad, working very hard to get into a graduate program, there's definitely this um, culture of perfectionism that we try to break um, as part of their clinical program. Uh, there's a fear of being wrong. Uh, but moving from what they learn in the classroom to the, the clinic, we tell our students that they have to make mistakes. That is part of the deal. That's what's expected of them. And the idea is they know more than they think they do. And the first risk I have them take is the ability to say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm going to look that up, uh, which shows me going back to your original point, motivation. The idea that we are constant learners and we do not know everything and doing a diagnosis, um, treating a patient that we're not quite sure of, asking for help are all risk taking behaviors and require a space of safety to be able to have those conversations and be able to trust your clinical supervisor for your client to be able to trust you. Um, there are these large pieces that we expect in our students. Um, and the fear of not being right prevents learning. So the idea is creating spaces where they can be motivated to take risks and be able to have conversations once risks have been taken, right? I always think of it's like a roller coaster. Once it's over, then we can talk about what went wrong, what should have gone differently. What was that ride like? Would you have done it again? How would you have changed it? Um, but first they have to get on the roller coaster. And that's the biggest piece for our students is telling them that it's going to be okay when they get to the end of the ride, they'll be better for it. Yeah, well, and we've been talking about this in the context of working with students, but obviously these are skills that we should bring with us in our you know, professional practice throughout our careers. Um, mm -hmm. And that this has a lot of interaction with, with reflective practice, um, I, I guess, you know, what are some of the implications you see for critical reflection at different career stages? Yeah, for sure. I feel that we get a speech and language pathology master's degree and it is a generalist degree. And some of us might know immediately what we want to do and do that for the rest of our lives. And a lot of us, myself included, thought we wanted to do one thing and then made a shift and made another shift. Um, and the idea here being knowing what you don't know is really important. Um, and to be able to say, I don't know, I need to look that up is really important, regardless of where you are, whether you're a mentor in the field for 30 years, whether you're a new grad just coming out, um, especially if you're shifting disciplines or shifting specific niche areas in the field. Um, I think there's real value in learning from each other, especially learning from more educated or people who have been in the field longer than us. But at the same time, there's a bravery at someone being in the field 30 years and saying, this new clinician is giving me information that is brand new evidence-based practice and might change the entire foundation of how I practice. And that doesn't mean what they were doing was wrong, but it may need to shift to match the information that we do have. And that idea takes, first of all, courage and bravery, which we've talked about. It's a risk taking, but it's also humility. Hmm. Um, and the idea of coming to critical thinking skills as a team-based approach as well. I'm leaning on the other clinicians that I work with to help support me. Um, I know that this person excels in this area. Let them support me. I'm brand new. Let me seek out CEUs. Um, part of the critical thinking is knowing that we never stop learning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something to continuously learn and to grow as clinicians um, as we build those critical thinking skills are really important. Yeah, thanks. And I appreciate your point about the the bravery that it takes, particularly as somebody with, with more experience. And I've felt that myself, you know, having been in the field for a while and, um, you know, practicing in new areas. And also just how, you know, our field changes over time. And um, it's that openness to, to learning and to 
evaluating the things that you know we think we know is really mm-hmm. important. Yeah. So in your talk, you you talked a bit about some challenges to critical thinking, and I wanted to explore those. Yeah. A bit. Um, so you know, new technology has always changed the way that we obtain and interact with information. Um, and so I wondered how can advances in uh, technology change the development of critical thinking? I think that with the advent of AI, especially programs like ChatGPT, there is so much at the fingers of our students right now um, and so much they're able to access. Um, Before ChatGPT, it was our Instagram and our Facebook, right, posting questions for other clinicians to answer for help support. the idea that you can type into chat DPT, oh, write a soap note for this patient seems like um, a possible real detriment to learning. So what we are trying to do and what we are trying to do from an AI perspective and as technology advances is how can we positively use this technology in a way that supports learning rather than fully shut it down and avoid it. Um, with some of my students who um, are interested in ChatGPT, we've talked about how to use it to support learning to navigate new practice areas. We've also talked about how to use it um, to help support learning new vocabulary. Um, but we also talk about things like plagiarism and things like uh, use and abuse of knowledge. Um, and what I think ASHA is trying to do with their ethics requirement and we're trying to do as clinical education is navigate this new territory, accepting the new technology into our fields while also putting boundaries and limits on it at the same time. Um, I think it's a great teaching tool. I think that as it learns and grows and develops, um, it'll continue to be a tool, especially for the classrooms. Um, but I treat it the same way I treat our Facebook groups and our Instagram groups, right? Just because it's there at the touch of your fingertips does not mean that to how you're going to learn and it doesn't, um, replace a graduate degree or a graduate coursework. Um, so it's something that we really think about when I talk to my students about AI and various technologies, um, we talk a lot about critical thinking skills. And if something is at your tips of your fingers, then how are you going to learn when it isn't exactly what was shown in that chat GPT message? Or when you don't have access to chat GPT? Or when your license is on the line? Um, so the idea that something is so easily and tantalizingly at your fingertips um, can make critical thinking really difficult. Um, but for our students who are motivated and our students who are interested, it really can be a tool as well as a detriment. So we try to walk that line. Well, and, you know, much like social media, um, you know, when we find information on AI, um, we still need to use our our professional skills to verify that and to see how it jives with uh, evidence-based practice. And, right. And, yeah. Um, well, during the COVID lockdowns, I think a lot of us had to learn new ways of teaching and supervising. Um, well, and obviously a lot of us experienced uh, stress and even trauma during the pandemic with lockdowns um, and yeah, it was quite a bit. And I think we're still kind of dealing with that and don't maybe talk about it quite as much as we um, as we should. But um, obviously, you know, stress and trauma can impact the development of critical thinking skills. So I was, I was you know, wanting to get your thoughts on that, about toxic stress and trauma and um, and their impact on the development and, and the implementation of critical thinking. Yeah. um, Toxic stress is something that permeates our culture. I talk about it a lot in our presentation. I talk a lot about it with our students, um, the importance of self-care. But the idea that stress fundamentally changes the biological braces and the neurological functions of the brain 
it increases cortisol levels, it increases stress levels, it affects the way we think, specifically in our amygdala and our frontal lobes, um, which affects our ability to take in information and to make decisions and remember meetings and to navigate multiple streams of information at one time. Um, and trauma is a big umbrella word that we use, right? Uh, the COVID pandemic was definitely traumatic for people across both of our countries and all over the world. Um, but we don't necessarily talk about the other traumas that occur in people's lives. We have students and faculty who are refugees. We have people who have been through domestic violence, who have food insecurity, um, mental illness and mental health concerns. Uh, everyone is being affected by some degree of trauma in their life. Um, as a clinical program, we have to look at that twofold. We have to look at it as how are we treating our clients who are coming in, who maybe signif uh, have significant issues with social determinants of health, significant issues with trauma at home, trauma in their history, trauma in their past, trauma in their future. And how do we train students who are actively in crisis a lot of the time? Especially, uh, I've never met someone who said that graduate school was the best time of their life. <laughs> I've never met someone who said that, you know, graduate school was a cakewalk. So if we take those pieces of trauma and we add additional mental health concerns, and then we put them in the pressure cooker that is undergrad and graduate school, um, we're at a place where we have to really be thoughtful about trauma-informed care for our students and treating them like they're people. Um, and I say that almost flippantly uh, because I can I hear myself saying, of course they're people. Like these are these are obviously humans that we deal with and that we work with and that we want to educate. Um, but there is this element of rules and boundaries that come into play where they can be flexible. And we can still have high standards, but thinking about the neurobiology of trauma, that it's no one's fault, no one is at fault, and this is not punitive for having gone through this. Um, and that idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just trying harder doesn't necessarily work in a lot of um, situations and mentalities. And we want these students, especially our students from minoritized backgrounds, especially our students who are first generation, who may not have the supports, uh, we want to support them through these programs so that they can come out the other side and be the amazing clinicians that we know that they can be. Um, and that is having an understanding of trauma, what that looks like, and how are we flexible to be able to work with our students who might need extended deadlines, who might need uh, to be absent for specific reasons within reason, right? Um, I was just talking about this with, I'm doing a presentation um, in the Cognitive Communication Conference on Friday, and we were talking about trauma-informed care and policies. And the question came up, how do we be flexible and still hold our students to a standard within trauma? Um, and uh, I gave an answer and someone else gave a different answer and someone else gave a third completely different answer. And we realized it's in such a case by case basis um, that we're really looking at trauma as an area where we can implement equity, not equality. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're supporting students and giving them what they need when they need it versus making it the same for everybody. Um, so trauma-informed care is really an issue of equity and supporting students and clients where they're at and meeting them where they're at. Thanks. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> I, could do, I could do a whole class on this. I'm happy to chat about it longer, but that's my uh, spark notes. So speaking of things that could be an entire class on themselves mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, related to toxic stress and mm -hmm. equity. Um, during your presentation, you referenced um, 
how racism and minoritization show up in an organization's culture. And you, you reference work by Tema Okun mm-hmm. on racism, and, and this probably relates to, you know, the legacy of colonization um, yeah. and how that shows up in organizations and can impede development uh, or use of critical thinking. And, and the author discusses things like the value that we assign to types of data, or you mentioned perfectionism earlier um, and the sense of urgency or, you know, the fear of expressing uncomfortable emotions or conflict. Um, So, you know, this, this link between social justice and anti-racism and critical thinking was, was really interesting to me. And I wondered if you could share some of your thoughts on this. Yeah. Talk about a whole class. Um, I think there's this large piece of going back to the original conversation you and I were having about safety and the idea of being in a safe space. And a lot of our students from minoritized backgrounds or, um, or minorities or English as a second language, not feeling safe in white dominated spaces and not feeling like they can make mistakes because of things like the model minority myth, for example. The idea is that if someone is a person of color, they have to try twice as hard to get half as far. Um, And the idea of being brave enough to make mistakes, well, they don't have that luxury necessarily because they can't make mistakes or they don't feel like they can make mistakes because they are representing a certain ethnic or social cultural group, um, because they uh, are here on scholarship and they want to prove something, um, or because they don't feel like they'll be supported in a similar way that their white peers might be. Um, So going back to inclusivity and equity, a lot of the conversations that we have with our students of color um, about providing them those opportunities and providing them that additional support uh, to be able to feel safe um, and having these conversations openly and saying like, this is, I am not judging you. I am not here to grade you down. I am not here to uh, do anything except teach you. And this has been a long process and an ongoing process um, because it's building rapport with these students to show that I'm not just saying equity and inclusion. I mean equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk a lot about in our program at Rutgers perfectionism and the idea of that being... um, a concept of like a racist mentality, the idea that we're needing to be perfect at all times and live up to a certain standard that we might be able to get to because of various socioeconomic factors that prevent us from getting there. Um, And the idea of self-care, which was co-opted from um, Audre Lorde, who is um, a, black woman who started talking about these concepts of personal care and self-care, not in the sense of going and getting your nails done and going to the spa, but what is the thing that feeds your soul? Um, And self-care is something that's been co-opted to Instagram, right? It's been co-opted, like, how do we self-care? Like lighting candles and curling up in front of necklace could very well be your self-care and there's no judgment. It could also just be sitting in silence. And the idea that these ideas, A, come from people of color originally to start, but also B, have been co-opted to this kind of commercialized um, idea of paying for self-care that is out of which is not in the realm for a lot of people who, especially our graduate students who don't have money to, you know, go to the spa, go get a manicure, uh, you know, take a day off work for a mental health day, right? Self-care has become something that's unrealistic to a lot of people um, because we've framed it in this very specific way. Um, So all of my students at the beginning of every semester, I sit down with them for our clinicals 
and we do one-on-ones and I say to them, what's your self-care plan? Um, and for my students of color, for my white students, for my queer students, whoever it is, we make a plan that is realistic for them, whatever their background is, whatever their socioeconomic status is. Um, and they have to enact it. And I check in every week to make sure that this plan is being um, enacted the way it needs to be. And if there are shifts that have to be made, we make them simply because of the idea of um, support and mentoring during these systems. I think a lot of our students don't necessarily feel supported and mentored through graduate programs. Um, so those check-ins and those caring about them as a person, I think really benefits them in the long run and goes a long way in kind of mitigating those stress difficulties and those self-care difficulties uh, because they feel like they have someone in their corner. Well, and it sounds like this psychologically safe environment that you're creating happens long before you are in a, a clinical setting, you know, that you're setting some groundwork there ahead of time. And yeah, so we've talked about some of the challenges to critical thinking and to, um, to psychological safety um, yeah. and wellness. Um, I, I wondered if you could talk a bit about um, some other things that, you know, a supervisor can do to create this environment that where somebody feels um, the safety to do the, the risk taking that is required by critical thinking. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing uh, supervisors can do is self-reflection. Um, that's step one. It's looking at ourselves and our personal biases, because we all have biases. We can't exist in this world without our personal prejudices and biases. Um, for people who are culturally responsive, that means constantly looking at those piecing them out, finding them and working them and figuring out where they come from. Um, so that's step one is knowing that you're someone who expects an email in 24 hours. And is that a realistic expectation? Or uh, you're someone who likes your soap notes in a very specific way. Um, is this realistic for a first year, first semester student to be able to do? Um, it's being thoughtful about what we're asking of our students and what they have on their plates already. Um, and that starts before you even walk into a room with a student. It starts from when you're setting expectations for the semester. Um, I have a policy with my students where I give them 24 hours to respond to all emails and 48 hours on the weekends. And I expect the same for me. So what I expect from my students, I also respect, expect from me. So that gives me the flexibility to be able to take my hands off, to be able to have an evening without obsessively checking my phone. And my students know that if they email me at 6 p.m. at night, I might not be checking my email at that time. Um, so part of it is self-reflection. Part of it is boundary setting. Um, I am my student's biggest cheerleader. I want them to succeed in every single way, but I also know my capacity and I know where I have to say, you know, our school has mental health services. Let's get you in an appointment. We have a food bank. Let's connect you with them. The idea of being a safe space and just referring, 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 and being a point person for that and having those resources on hand before you even meet with students. Um, I find that knowing your university and knowing what's available and knowing who to connect with. Um, I know a lot of our supervisors, especially our adjunct supervisors, they come in, they might supervise and then they leave, right? They have a less of a connection with the university. Um, but the idea of knowing your school and knowing what they have at their fingertips to be able to access or putting them in connection with the right person to be able to do that, um, so number one, take a look at yourself. Number two, know your resources. Um, I would say three, we talk a lot about bi-directional feedback. 
Um, and the idea is a, it's a definitely a game changer for my students, which is they don't get to leave my office unless they've given me a piece of feedback about how I can change my performance. Um, we really try to avoid the mentor mentee model, the hierarchical model of I'm your supervisor, therefore I know everything. Um, and we really try to go to that idea that we're working on a team and I'm your teammate. And if you have something to say, if you saw something I didn't, if you have an article, please share it with me. If I'm not teaching in a way that works for you, tell me. Um, and it's almost like an, like an exit requirement for my meetings where the students are like, you're doing everything great. And I was like, everyone can do everything better. Let me know if there's a change I should make. And they're always like, well, you could send me more articles. Well, you can model this. Well, and they really have to dig and they have to find something. Um, and it really solidifies that open and honest communication because they'll say it and then they wait for me to get mad at them. They're just waiting. And I, I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate that feedback. Um so in addition to that bi-directional feedback, it's also modeling, right? We can get really huffy. We all like to think we're doing a good job. Um, we all are really busy, right? So the idea of now having to do another thing can be really frustrating, but we're here for the students and this will support their growth. Um, I think the last piece that I'll say is committing to meeting times. Uh, I meet with my students once a week for 30 minutes and I try my damnedest to not cancel those meetings for other things. Those are standing meetings. They're, they're priority. My students are a priority to me. So that is time, whether you need it or you don't need it. I've had students walk in and be like, I don't need to talk anything clinical today. I'm having a really hard time with neuro. <laughs> and I'm like, let's talk about it. Um, knowing that there doesn't, that they can come to me and my time, even though it's busy, can be theirs if they're brave enough to ask for it, if they have the courage to ask for it, if we make a safe place for them to be able to ask for help. Um, that uh, has allowed my students to be able to come in and out of my office freely to be able to ask to schedule meetings to talk about our national exams, to be able to get them referred for mental health services. Um, so sometimes it's about the things we do in the meetings and sometimes it's the things we don't do, like don't cancel them if you can avoid it. Now, sometimes we need to cancel them. Sometimes there are things that take priority mm -hmm. and I make sure that my students know and give them alternate times. It's not that we're canceling it, bye, see you later, have a great week. It's knowing that they're valuable um, and taking their ideas. And I'll, I'll add one more, my other favorite little trick and tip I love to do with my students uh, is holding off on giving them the right answer. When we're talking about building critical thinking skills, if they say, is this aphasia? I'll say, well, what do you think? It's always you throw it back to them. You give them the opportunity to be able to describe to me. And if they say, I don't know, we use the Bloom taxonomy. We use those questioning approaches that we talk about a lot. If they can't create a response, I ask them to just identify. If they can't tell me if this is aphasia, I'll ask them, well, what is aphasia? Or what's the difference between non-fluent and fluent aphasia? Giving them a more concrete question to be able to feel like they know something and to show what they know so that we're building that safe space and not that I'm right, you're wrong, but you have a lot to contribute here. Give me the information you have and let's see what our next step is to get you where you need to be. Uh, you know, as we were talking, I was, I was reflecting a bit about how um, <laughs> the, the first step in supporting other people's critical thinking yeah. is for us to use our critical thinking and reflective practice ourselves, which is great. Um, and also with the bi-directional feedback, um, I imagine that for uh, 
um, people who haven't had the confidence or haven't just kind of learned mm-hmm. the, the pragmatics of, of providing feedback or or haven't felt empowered to do that because of you know trauma or uh, minoritization you know what a I don't know what an empowering thing that must be um, yeah and how it can probably help them further on you know in their careers when they are not in a safe space but need to provide for sure back and you know we, we've been talking about uh, supervision in the in the university, a lot of supervision happens yeah. post graduation, and um, I, I think that that you know your advice on kind of knowing what um, what are the resources and uh, what are the systems in your university can really apply to the the, the multitude of of places that a supervisor works. Um, or provide support to an early career speech pathologist. Um, and that can be kind of tricky here in Australia. A lot of services are provided at smaller private practices. Um, and so, you know, if you're supervising somebody, particularly if you're an external supervisor, who's been contracted just to provide the supervision services. It's, it's right. um, pretty important for us to know what's happening at that practice and um, what are the resources there. So, but moving on, uh, you know, you talked about some support and questioning strategies for facilitating critical thinking. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned a few specifically like Bloom's taxonomy and, and the hierarchy of uh, higher level questioning. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. Sure, happily. So Bloom's taxonomy is uh, a level of questioning and learning based on critical thinking skills and based on thinking skills. Um, It starts at remembering facts and information and goes all up to creating information and facts um, and creating and designing things. And for our students, if we think about where they start with their learning, um, especially if they start clinicals quickly, they may be just learning to remember what dysphagia is while also ask being asked to analyze a dysphagia case, right? They may be working with a three-year-old and they're just learning all the different play strategies and trying to hold that in their head while being asked to do higher order thinking tasks like creating a session plan or evaluating a client to see whether or not they have an expressive language delay, um, which is a real barrier to learning. Um, So for a lot of our students, when we talk about Bloom's taxonomy, we think about where our students are starting at. Um, Some of my students come in and they zoom through Bloom's taxonomy, or they start at a much higher level in the taxonomy, where I can say to them, oh, this child has difficulty um, with this, let's say a receptive language difficulty. And my student says, oh, then we can do this, this, and this to help target that. That's a student who's taken knowledge from the classroom, remembered it, understands it, and is able to apply it. And those are the first three steps of Bloom's. And then I say, great, we can look at that higher level thinking skills higher up in the pyramid because you seem to have a basis for all of these things. Um, I always use my aphasia example. If I have someone, if I say to a student, um, they did this test, what is their diagnosis? What would you diagnose them with? And my student looks at me you know, with those wide eyes, terrified to tell me, I don't know, I'll say, okay, well, what are our options? What could it be? If that doesn't help, I would say, well, is it this or is it this? If that doesn't work, I'll say, well, what is this? So we're really thinking about as supervisors, whether we're supervising at the undergraduate graduate level, whether we're CF supervisors, or whether we are, you know, observing someone or training someone who's switching careers and to a new discipline or a new area of the field, um, meeting them where they're at and building on that knowledge rather than saying, well, you don't know what this is. How are you going to apply it? Or asking someone to apply it when they don't know the difference between Broca's or Wernicke's. Um, 
So using that Bloom's taxonomy to ask questions in really structured ways, um, all of our supervisors have it up on their desks at, um, at Rutgers, and we fine tune our questions to our students on our one-on-one -on -one meetings based on that pyramid. So we may start at what activities do you think they should do? And if the student can't generate activities, we're like, all right, applying is hard. Let's see if they understand. And we'll go down the pyramid to make sure the student understands what's going on. Um, and sometimes they may not even be able to recall what they learned from class or haven't even learned it yet. Um, so it's using that to scale up and down critical thinking skills and also expectations for our students. Um, when we built this clinical program, our clinical director, Stephanie Hubble, um, really made it clear what the expectations for a first year, first semester student are. And it is not creating their own session plans, because at this point, they're just trying to remember what things are, um, even though they might have an undergrad in it or might have had a course in it. Right. This is new territory. Um, so it's also building expectations to the program based on blooms that matches where the students, where they're at. Well, and you talked a bit about um, Socratic questioning as well, which is a thing that um, I think many of us will be familiar with. And, and I think you've given us some examples of how you, you know, Socratic questioning, yes. but uh, could you define that a bit more for us? Sure. So the idea of Socratic questioning um, is this idea of asking why. It's, you know, if we have something that's really complex, if we have beliefs, um, that are held asking someone to explain why to kind of clarify meeting and to challenge assumptions. Um, I find that the biggest thing I hear from our supervisors is that the students want me to give them the answers. Um, they don't want to seek out answers and do the research and do the work. They want to be handed answers. Um, it also builds this idea of lack of competence and lack of confidence, right? If you're always going to people to ask for reassurance that you might not be able to stand on your own two feet as quickly, mm. um, especially when we talk about medical settings, right? If you always have to ask why and how in a medical setting, um, some of this knowledge should already be ingrained, so the idea of someone asking me, I had a student ask me recently, well, what do you think he has? What do you think this client has during one of our diagnostic sessions? And I was like, well, what do you think he has? And it seems so silly parroting it back. It seems like the easiest thing on the planet. Um, but I went to the board and I wrote down everything the student said. And then I was like, well, why couldn't it be apraxia? And she was like, oh, because they're able to repeat their errors consistently. And I was like, great, let's take that out. Why couldn't it be dysphagia or uh, dysarthria? And she gave me reasoning for that. And what we're doing is building a schema for critical thinking for our students. Because going from point A to point B might be really, really difficult. The idea of going back to blooms and diagnosing and analyzing might be difficult. So Socratic questioning kind of goes hand in hand with Blooms. It's this idea that we're meeting them where they're at and we're asking them questions to pull on their knowledge points for them to say, well, this is what I do know. I'm like, great. So can you answer the question you asked me yourself now? And they might say, maybe. And I'll say, okay, let's talk some more about this. And it takes a long time. This isn't a quick process. And I know a lot of our supervisors who work in more medical settings may not have the time to do this as in-depth as we do at the graduate level. I respect and understand that. But at the same time, this Socratic method of questioning allows our students to know what they don't know, allows our students to figure out how to think about things and kind of walk with us on that path towards the answer rather than telling them the directions to get there. Um, so that's something that we are really big on. And eventually my students are able to do this on their own where they'll, I'll, they'll hear, they make fun of me, all of them, um, because they're like, Kelly will never answer a question. 
<laughs> she, she will always ask you for your thoughts on the question. It's become a running joke. Um, but those students end up doing really well in their clinical settings because they're like, this is the information I know. I know this, 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 and this. My question, the piece of the puzzle that I can't fill in is this. So they're asking more informed questions. They're asking educated questions and they're showing what they know rather than hiding from that and and not taking that risk. So it all loops back to Socratic questioning, uh, loops back to blooms, which loops back to critical thinking, which loops back to risk taking. It's all kind of one large um, umbrella that we live under. So uh, when you have a supervisee who is exercising critical thinking skills and, and you kind of see them higher up on that, that blooms taxonomy pyramid and, mm-hmm. um, what are some ways that you can reinforce their use of these skills and, and their confidence in, in using them? I find that the most reinforcing thing for my students is giving them the space to succeed. Um, I find a lot of them really respond to meeting with me and them giving me them their ideas and them running our meetings. <laughs> I'll say to them, well, what do you think we should do? And they'll be like this, this, and maybe this, and maybe I'll call this person and we should do this test. And it goes back to that idea of mentorship and what is a mentor. Um, and the idea of a mentor being someone who's there to teammate and support you Um, If I don't have to be leading the charge, if I'm there to just be on the team while that student just completely kills it and does all those pieces, if I need to kind of steer the ship right or left to help them get there, but continuing to take our hands off the wheel and saying, this client is safe, this student is safe, they might make mistakes, but I'm here to support them and giving them the space to make mistakes. Um, We follow the Anderson model of supervision with um, our program. So the idea of as time goes on, we are, as we start, we're very hands-on with supervision. We model for the students as, as they get experience, we start to take hands off of our students um, and we start to have them be able to treat more independently, make decisions more independently. Um, And I find that there's nothing more reinforcing for a student when they've run their first solo session and they come out and they're so excited and they feel like they made choices, but they also felt like I was waiting outside of the room in case anything happened. Um, We don't have to be in or out. There's an idea of a safety net for these students, especially in house clinics. Um, And I find that the more confidence they gain, the more reinforcing that is, and the more independence they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start to to look at our interaction as colleague to colleague rather than mentor to mentee. Um, and then they're like, "Oh, I'm in the SLP club. I'm now an SLP. <laughs> I can I can do all of this now," um, which is where we want them to be. So when they go to externship, they can continue to build on that model. And when they graduate and when they go into new placements, they continue to have that uh, schema for themselves. Well, as we wrap things up, I mm. wondered if you had any final thoughts or anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners. Oh, I always have final thoughts. My final thoughts could be a whole episode. Um <laughs> It was interesting. I did this presentation at ASHA and there was a lot of positive responses at ASHA. uh, But I had someone come up to me and it stuck with me. And they said, this is pie in the sky thinking. This is not realistic. The world can't be this way. We can't move to this model. Um, We're providing too much flexibility. It was a lot of feedback like that. Um, which I understand we're a newer program in the States. We're building from the ground up. A lot of programs are more established. They have roots um, 
they can't necessarily do weekly meetings or, um, you know, they don't have the time to necessarily do all of these pieces. Um, what I would say to those people is take the pieces that you can and you can use more than you think you can. Um, you don't have to change your entire program. You don't have to train every person. Um, it starts with you and it's building a culture. Um, so even though your program might not be on board, even if you're not able to change policies, you will be a supervisor who students go and trust and they can pay that forward and they can learn to supervise in the way that you do. Um, so this idea of building not only a culture at the institution you are, whether you are at a hospital, a school, a private practice, a university, um, but it's also building a future generation of clinicians who are kind and culturally responsive um, just, and this is something someone else told me after my ASHA presentation, um, that hierarchy is important. That's the way I was trained, was what someone told me. The hierarchy has made me the clinician I am today. Um, and something that I said to her, well, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to perpetuate something like that if it's harmful, if it doesn't work, if it causes fear, if it causes more stress. Um, so the idea that just because it's the way we've done something and the way we've always done something doesn't mean that's the way we have to continue doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so I urge to take the pieces that work for you, make them work and realize we're playing a long game here. Yeah. Well, that's a bit of that piece that you mentioned of, of us doing that self-reflection on our own and yeah. risk-taking and, and being open to... Right. Fun. New is scary. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well... Kelly Pena, thanks so much for sharing this information. Um, Happily. Thank you for having me. This is I really enjoyed our discussion, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Good. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Speak Up. We hope you've enjoyed this week's conversation. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with your colleagues and friends. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.